0: Hello and welcome to Laps and Gaps, this is Basil. In today's podcast, Jack and I discuss ESG mandates and the gray areas they must contend with as marijuana and psychedelics are legalized and pose some good for society. This is the most fun I've ever had on a podcast and one where we disagree quite a bit.
1: The content presented here only reflects the opinions of those presenting at the time of their conversation. It may not reflect their current views nor does it reflect the views of any institution they represent. Information presented may contain factual errors. Any opinion presented should be considered for informational purposes and not be relied upon in any investment decision. The opinions expressed by any host or guest should not be considered legal or investment advice, nor should they be used to evaluate any investment or security. The content is not directed at any investor or potential investor in any fund or for any firm. Clients of those presenting on this may hold investments mentioned and may have different investment goals from your own. Good to see you today. Welcome back to another episode of Laps and Gaps. It'll be fun to talk through a couple of different topics. One of the things we were thinking about as we walked into this, I asked you a question about THC and psychedelics, which is not out of, not of personal recommendation, but rather uh, an observation uh, that we can get into a little bit uh, further on the, on the cast. But what are, we wanted to frame it or anchor this from a perspective or point of view was around your view as an ESG investor and explain what ESG means and what it means to you. And then from the venture and private investment side, there are vice clauses and moral clauses typically within the fund structures of these uh, different businesses, which are impacting the cannabis and what I anticipate to be the kind of the psychedelic market that we're going to see arising in in the coming in the coming years. So, with that as an anchor, what I wanted to ask you is, can you for our listeners talk about what ESG for you means, and wh- how you th- go about thinking about it. Because, and then we'll get into a little of the tensions that I feel around it, especially around the, these p- two particular market areas.
0: Yeah, I'd like to get a little bit more into the moral clause because I'm not sure what, what that is. let's get into that later. So let's talk ESG. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. It also goes by SRI, which stands for socially responsible investing. The other term in the category is impact investing, which is a little bit different. Impact investments can be in investments that are ESG and SRI compliant, but there are also often in categories where they're seeking improvement. So it could be if it were on the governance side, they would call it impact. If it was a chairman and CEO take an investment and essentially convince the company to separate those roles, that would be an impact investment. On the E side, on the environmental side, it may be something like buying an oil and gas company and then convincing them not to do fracking that would be an impact investment. So that kind of straddles uh, a number of things, but there are a lot of different flavors. And while some like me adopted an ESG framework when it was unpopular today, many firms are adopting it because it is popular. I think there are a number of follow on effects depending on the firm's level of conviction in ESG. And we can or don't have to get into that. My version of ESG investing is no vice, no defense, which is because I won't do anything that kills people as its end goal, and then nothing that exploits their customer base. Why was it unpopular? So people viewed putting any kind of restraint on where you invested as being something where you could miss returns. And for broad indexes? So the data would suggest that that's not true with ESG in particular, that ESG indexes have performed at least in line with the S&P 500. That was true. Sorry. That was true as of 2016. I don't know if that's been true over the past four years. There are a number of things that stopped stopped working over the past four years that maybe were true before that. So the sentiment Uh,
1: was you were somehow compromising returns out of particular. Yeah, because you avoided
0: tobacco because you avoided alcohol. So apologies to the fine people at firms that do ESG ratings, but they'll publish guidelines that determine the ratings, and then you as an investor kind of have to trust that they've done the deep work to really understand the business, and I don't do that. There's a, you know, Google X sits within Google. Facebook, just on its own as an entity, can, different people can have different judgments on whether that is a... ESG or business or not. And I prefer to make those decisions on my own, which means that there's certainly moral quandaries where you'll have different people taking different views on what is compliant and what is not. For instance, I generally view pharmaceutical companies to be ESG compliant. I don't believe many orphan drug manufacturers are though, but that depends on their individual pricing policy. So it requires bottoms up work. Making insulin isn't bad. Charging $400 a vial is. I think that They're exploiting their customers not helping the world and to me that makes them more akin to an abusive payday lender than to something that is far more on the side of the angels a lot of esg investors will say that their focus is on the g in esg that they get in there and talk with management about improving the company's governance kind of the impact investing i was talking about earlier and that makes them esg and that's fine that's not my flavor i think that flavor is useful but i do think it's widely abused And so I don't think anyone's a hero really for suggesting that the chairman and CEO should be different roles to me it should be more substantive than that. If you're going to be impact or an ESG investor and, and people, when they allocate capital to you or give you money to invest on their behalf are trusting you to, to be doing good in the world. And while some of you have adopted an ESG framework, which was unpopular four years ago when I started, but today uh, a lot of people have adopted it because it is popular. There are a lot of assets heading that way.
1: Yeah. So uh, just quickly on vice yeah. clauses, I mentioned them at the outset, they were very specific in, in what they didn't and did allow. And largely it was because some of your large LPs in these funds are either religious organizations, sovereign wealth funds, or major investors in venture capital and in general. And so because they are a large funding base themselves, they have particular constraints on where and how they want their capital utilized. And so that's the growth of these vice clauses, which was typically alcohol, tobacco, firearms, gambling. And moral clauses are a little bit fuzzier version of that. The moral clause is somewhat in the same vein and, and they exist within funds. So I think vice clause is a very explicit way to define it. Moral clauses along the same continuum, but a little bit fuzzier. And one of the things I wanted to come back and ask you related to the ESG is it seems like there's, it's a, Kind of a continuum. And it's almost a discontinuous continuum. It's someone's continuum, you personally as an investor in your own fund, whether you've defined it explicitly and how explicitly in your fund documents is one thing. And then how you interpret it is a second thing. And that every fund that is in this space functions on that. And they're at different points along this continuum. So for example, and I think one of the ones I wanted to just test how you think about this is say you're in a a business that's not heavily, you're a restaurant business and you've never served alcohol before in your business and you decide an important or valuable kind of revenue stream that you might be able to bring in is bringing in the sales of alcohol. So the question then is, how do you as an ESG investor kind of square that versus investment in alcohol versus a business that's choosing to pull that in? And just wanted your view on it. Yeah, so for me, that would matter if,
0: if they're in the alcohol, are they in the alcohol business or are they... And the, are they providing food, right? So the the example I would use instead of the restaurant business because well, for whatever, is the cinema business, the movie business. And in the movie business, a lot of movie theaters will offer alcohol, but it's, they're still making most of their money on the popcorn and the drinks and the theater tickets. So in the restaurant business, why I think it's a little squishier and I'm not sure for a particular restaurant, it wouldn't matter to me is because that can be a hundred percent of the profit. And if that's the case, then I'm not interested. To me, that would violate, whereas if it was something they, they do to sell some more lasagna, that's different.
1: So then that brings me to a, a second example. Uh, so you have – and so I'm just trying to get a feel for how youth. so let's take the – we'll use a sport league. You can't invest in this business, so it's a safe one for us to talk about, but the you've got the NFL and the NBA, two leagues that historically had a very antagonistic relationship with gambling. That was largely because federally um, – uh, and statewise it was largely illegal to bet on sports uh, in pretty much every state, I think, except Las Vegas. And I'm probably missing one other small one. Uh, and then it became more, uh, not only more socially acceptable, but actually legal. And so you had these businesses that had historically stayed away from it start to move pretty heavily into gambling links with, whether it's fantasy football, actually co-marketing with DraftKings and uh, FanDuel and all the different kind of same-day sports betting and you started to actually see kind of advertising. I think in the most recent, you've got a football team in Las Vegas with, within their stadium advertising for gambling in the center of gambling. So how do you, if you were investing, let's say, in NFL and put aside whether or not you think the sport is cool or not and you were going to rule it out for that purpose, but simply from the gambling aspect of this this additional revenue stream, which could be seen as potentially compromising in either one of these vice clauses, moral clauses, or and your clause as an ESG investor – and it's penetration into kind of this business. Do you back out of it if you already invested into it? Do you stay away from it? Even if it's a really strong profile, how do you think about that?
0: If it's, again, if it's a minority of the profit stream, that is, if the, if they're not doing the sport for for gambling purposes, but gambling is a minor additional revenue stream or, or income stream, then it depends on the extent of that income stream. But if it's small enough, then I'm okay with it because it's just part of it's just part of doing their business but not not it's core a, to their business. It's a glass identity. of wine
1: at, it's a glass of wine at dinner amongst a right. broad entertainment versus you know so the entertainment product is that's the right. product.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's the product. Exactly. It's they want to put seats in there, they wanna increase their usage, they're not just trying to do it for the gambling.
1: That's interesting. So what I'm hearing from you is it's a combination of both what the management's expressing, what the strategy of the business is. There's a financial performance aspect that you're considering or looking into and then there's a general kind of product view that you're also thinking about. And what is alcohol's role as a portion or piece of that product or a predominant part of that product? And yeah, that's I think kind that's, of how you think about it.
0: I think that's fair. I mean, I think the percentage of profit either current or in the future is that's a big part of the analysis. So maybe management's commentary around it is it's important, but, but less important because it is about the, the revenue generated ultimately.
1: Yeah. So in, in the private market with these moral clauses and vice clauses what we've actually seen in more recent years especially as it relates to kind of marijuana cannabis businesses which have seen significant growth i think the legal cannabis sales are 12.4 billion in 2019 and expected to climb up to 50 billion in 2025 it's legal in 35 states either for medical or recreational purposes or both some mixed uh, combination of that but there's a strong push for federal legalization of it uh, but there was this tension with these moral and vice clauses in your world where you're buying and investing into public uh, companies. What you have was a bunch of new startup businesses in this high growth space. And you had investors who were just investing in shadow sidecar funds that w- with their own money into businesses that were generating returns separate from the funds. And so, or you had vice specific funds, uh, which was- So, but hold on. so, so they,
0: they were investing in the product while it was illegal?
1: No, I mean, they were investing in businesses. The businesses had to be performing, presumably, legal services for what they were doing. Um, but technically, if you're investing in a cannabis business now, it's illegal federally, right? Depends on yeah. what you're doing. But yeah.
0: Yeah, look, it, I mean, because to me, it doesn't take a hero to not invest in illegal drug running. So to, to, to say that you're not doing it because of the moral clause, or but you're putting it into a sidecar, kind of divorces from really the whether that that business is moral or not. It's not, we might call it a morality clause, but you're calling it a legality clause. Well, I think Uh, really than more than a morality because the legalization shouldn't impact the morality of its offering.
1: So I think there is some truth in the recreational use of, of marijuana. I think it gets fuzzier as you think about medicinal, medicinal pathways and, and and maybe it's more interesting and, to think about that and the developments in the psychedelic space related to management and treatment of depression. But if I take a step back and think about traditional venture, at least in the Valley, has largely been focused on applications, web platforms, business services. And so the trade-off always really made sense. Someone wanted to carve out moral clauses, vice clauses. That that was pretty easy to do. What's the likelihood that's going to impact my business? impact my investment uh, profile that I'm looking at. I think what we've seen is a $50 billion market is not an insignificant market. And you're starting to see opportunities be pursued out of interest of a typical investor. Hey, there's high growth market, there's products and services that we can sell into that market. And that's where you're seeing interest in investment and either peeling back what those clauses are out of kind of a different, moving along the continuum. Kind of like I asked you with the question of, how do you think about decisions around your investments? And you're seeing funds do that, or LP is also open to the consideration of a wider acceptance of of marijuana, similar to, I guess, alcohol investments and the like.
0: Right. I mean, I, I guess my
1: private the, equity, I, for the record, private equity has been much more kind of forward in this space than because they just have a
0: number of investors and a lot of funds that just don't care what the underlying is. And I think that's totally fair. People should do that. But the vice clause then just doesn't. Make any sense if you're a company, if you're a firm that's moving from we won't do marijuana to now we will because it's legal, well, you never really had a vice clause in the first place then right because it's still a vice, it's just now it's legal, Dispect. so your vice clause doesn't have any teeth right? well, I think <laughs> so, the teeth
1: i think the teeth in it is none of your investments will knowingly be you know felony. F- felony creating for for the company. But that doesn't right?
0: take a hero, right? It just like, hey, should we all get arrested for for providing funds to the cartel, or should we not? Like like that's that's a different, that's a whole different conversation. I think that has a really low bar. Think, if they're think, saying hey, we will invest in high growth markets, okay, but don't tell me that like there's some vice clause or that you care somehow about what the. Again, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to do any of this, but I'm just saying that the vice clause never really applied anyway then, right? So if you're an allocator that was, was investing in a fund because it had a vice clause, and now they're doing this on the side, then they never really cared about the vice clause in the first place.
1: I think that you're right. I think it's uh, sleep well at night LP clause. But, but, <laughs> but no, my point is whether it's legal or
0: not illegal it doesn't impact whether it's vice or not vice.
1: So how about I offer, offer my perspective uh, here? So, <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, fine. One, I, there's the, the classic saying, which is you have a legal contract. If it's a well-done contract, you put it in the drawer and you never have to look at it again. I don't know how many people go back and read the entirety of these fund documents. They are hundreds of pages long and probably only in the downside cases where things aren't going well. Do people go read it? And so a clause buried within that. I think is less important than your LPs knowing who you're investing in. And so I found this information and just side points of these investors who say, well, my fund won't allow me to invest in this, but it's a high growth field, so I'm just gonna invest my own funds into it. Like I I might, that would raise question into who, who are you giving your money to as an LP? And who is that person allocating investment? And similar to you, I think it's actually incumbent upon the investor or the GP or the, the group that's making the investments to express and be very clear about what is inbounds and out of bounds for how they think, about, they think about what opportunities they're pursuing. And I think the clauses themselves, while interesting, are less, less overall impacting than who the person is that is leading the investments. Which brings me to psychedelics uh, and a question for you. So psychedelics, I think it's Oregon became the first state to legalize it for medicinal purposes. I think this is different space and ground than is Oregon ballot measure 109. It passed by 56% to 44%, and we're actually seeing some pretty significant venture investment into it. Is around depression and the management of the depression. So we've seen a ton of investment in general in services and direct to inser- direct to employer types of. Products and technologies to try to tackle the issue with depression. Uh, depression's largely underdiagnosed, largely undermanaged. It is itself a discontinuous continuum, where everyone functions on their own kind of continuum. Sometimes up into a clinically depressed level, but oftentimes you, you might not be clinically depressed. But you, I know, I personally move along a continuum some days and some months. Especially in a pandemic, I might be feeling a little bit more towards the depressed symptom side. And what they're exploring around that uh, a lot of the investment has was how do we tackle this problem? And, and in that rose has risen, the idea that what we're currently doing, which is having you sit on a couch for therapy or management, not that it's, it's insufficient alone, and that there may be other pathways. And so why this is a little interesting, uh, you know, the medicinal use of marijuana was in chronic pain. And pain's a little different uh, for me than depression, which is a real condition and a real disease. And there's real physiology that we don't fully understand. We have some piece together aspects of it. So what I wanted to ask you was, obviously there's two parts to psychedelics. There's the recreational use. I actually think the use, the recreational use is probably far lower than what cannabis and certainly alcohol use is. And then the medical use, which to me has a more direct application into a real disease space. And the question I had for you was traditionally therapy for a disease ran through kind of a heavy R and D pipeline, drug development, pharmaceutical biotech type of model. What you're seeing in the psychedelic spaces, because it's the products and services are almost outstripping the pace of the medical spaces, ability to kind of comprehend this as a potential option that you have more recreational use for medicinal purposes. And there's this blurred space between traditional reimbursable healthcare where you've studied it with extensive randomized control trials. And, hey, this is working. It's kind of like Headspace. Headspace, I I use the app and I feel personally more at peace after I use that. I don't actually own the app or pay for the app. But the point is, I feel personally better for having used it. And so there's this personal care space where you're seeing the movement of this. And so, what that creates is a really fuzzy line around business models that might be cash pay for psychedelics, but for medicinal purposes. And obviously, there's the whole side, which is cash pay for psychedelics for additional alternative purposes. But what's interesting is if you talk to anyone who uses psychedelics, they feel it's improving their life in one way or another, whether through perspective or odd experiences and walks in the desert. Whatever it might be, so there's this personal interpretation of it, which is equally as personal as your ESG interpretation. So, how do you think about that type of developing space? And let's say it becomes a significant part of some company in the future that's healthcare related, but building this product that's actually trying to help. I presume you wouldn't have a problem investing in Headspace, right? No, and I wouldn't have a problem
0: investing in a pharmaceutical company that. But there's did this a middle blind trap. Well, the, if, because because everything you said just sounds a lot like hydrochloroquine. Right? Doesn't it? And then when we actually do the studies, we realize maybe it didn't didn't have the intended impact. Right? And that it was anecdotal.
1: I think what you're seeing in the studies around psychedelics is the same. And uh, yes, so I guess the answer is yes. You're seeing anecdotal feedback, although there are studies being performed that show materially positive outcomes related to certain types of major depression and the like, uh, whether it be with ketamine or or more progressive types of things on the. On the psychedelic side, I think the Oregon measure was for mushrooms specifically.
0: To me, a- anything that can be prescribed by a doctor, and therefore is justified to be prescribed by a doctor, is fine. Like, but what uh, if it, it's it not, not?
1: What if it's not prescribed if, by a doctor? It, then I think it's tough. It's tough, but it's not a no because there's alcohol in well, no, Nyquil. It, Are you okay no, no, with Nyquil?
0: Am I? Yeah, I'm okay with Nyquil
1: because the doctor doesn't prescribe it, it; has alcohol in it.
0: I, I hear you, but it's also there to deal with flu symptoms at night. See, there's right? a stigma and been, around. And, and there's been studies around, Hey, does this do anything for that or not? Now the the question though, is versus a vitamin or versus a supplement. Am I okay with vitamins and supplements?
1: And I think actually that is a key point. So in this kind of RX, which is, I can prescribe it from a, as a doctor to OTC over the counter, which is what yep. we said, NyQuil to Nutraceuticals, which is on the other end of the spectrum, uh, to me. What is that? I don't know what
0: that means. What is that? Uh, uh,
1: nutraceuticals. It's kind of the nutrition, all the different kind of supplements and things that people use. Okay. Without much data that largely just, you end up peeing out. Just, but, should, but
0: just skips the FDA altogether because they say, hey, you just pee it out because it doesn't have a real impact on a body's physiology. I mean, I don't know any right. of
1: the businesses that have tried on that successful marketing campaign, but yes. <laughs>
0: we don't really work, so it's okay. No, obviously they don't say that, uh, but, but, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? Psychedelics are obviously not that. I think it matters. They obviously it have matters. A very real it, impact. The question is whether it's positive or negative. It, and the, 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 greater question is that how does it impact either the provider of the good or the user of the good? And if it creates, to me, if it creates addiction in any populace, it doesn't matter how big or small, then it goes into that vice category. If you don't, nobody's addicted to vitamins. But you can be addicted to marijuana. You're not in danger of going into poverty because you're like, I've got to get more vitamins. There's nobody like <laughs> that. Well, that does I mean- not exist. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, define addiction people, for me. You feel like you have to take it.
1: I have like, aunt, like I have an aunt, like and uncle. By, I have an aunt and uncle by your definition that are professional doctor goers. Oh. They just are addicted to going to see the doctor. Yeah, that's an actual addiction. So the question is, I'm not going to invest. Com- are you not going to invest no, no, in no. doctors and physician practices because no, they're the, the, the doctor isn't thinking,
0: how is it that I can get this guy? to come in here every day, that would be ideal. Can I get them to come in here every day? He's thinking, I need them to not use this product. That is not the case with marijuana or alcohol or tobacco or gambling. If you're good at any of those institutions, like if you are a great marketing person at any of those things, you have displayed ways to get your customers to keep on coming back and to continue to spend with you. The doctor in this case is trying to get you to not come in to not spend with you. Those are very different things.
1: Now, what about NyQuil? And NyQuil is trying to
0: get you over the flu for, for five days and get you right. a night's sleep. And then you're done with it and you're never coming back until you get the flu again.
1: So, so this gets me to where I think psychedelics are different than marijuana and why I think the psychedelic market is interesting. Marijuana, which is used for chronic pain and I think valuable- I have no idea by the, the way.
0: Sorry, I don't have any idea if psychedelics are addictive. I grouped them together for this conversation. I'm not going to argue way, for... I also, or... I for the record, also just want to say that I think depression is a real thing. And the chemically treating it is okay by me. If it's psychedelics or whatever it is. Yeah. But I would like a doctor involved. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So go
1: ahead. I think what you claim is important. I think that's why your argument around Nike will matter. So, when you're selling over the counter, what your claim is and that you can deliver against that claim, that's the issue with supplements and the like, what they claim versus what they actually do. And so, the data and information and ability to communicate that and then stay within that. And so, I think it's really important when you, if you were to look at businesses in this space, so that you would think very deeply around the management teams view on what go-to-market is and what that approach is and the level of sophistication. It doesn't have to be pharma-level drug development, I don't believe, but there is a whole service and solution and product delivery mechanism that would be really important to understand because I think what you would see is you'd find businesses that wanted higher margin to cover the R&D and research development costs to prove out the claim versus lower margin, broad scale, consumer sell, repeat sell, repeat sell, repeat sell. And I think that in this space of from a venture side, an early stage business where you're developing new markets, if I were to communicate that type of message to an LP if in a fund, if I were running a fund, I think them understanding that, hey, this space might be inbound, but here are, here's how I actually think about that opportunity. Uh, I think that would be an important consideration to think through. And I think it would be within bounds. And I would worry that a clause, a very strict clause would kind of box you out of that. And
0: What's your view on methadone clinics? Is this a good business or is this a tough business?
1: I think opioid addiction is a r- serious problem and we need a multitude of approaches to solve that problem and we need innovation around it. And so I think methadone is an effective path for that. And so I think potentially a viable pathway and good investment to consider. Okay,
0: if if that they are habitually used to abuse to get people from one high to the next, one illegal high to the next, is it still a good idea or is it a bad idea? Are the clean needle pro- let's, let's, are the let's, clean
1: let's, needle programs in San Francisco a good program or a bad program?
0: Let's actually take it out of the the hypothetical big category and say, we know this one clinic that does a million in sales is habitually used by people who are addicted to just get to the next high that they can get, right? It's used while they're building funds in order to go buy illegal drugs. Now, is that a, to your mind, a valid business or or an ESG compliant? To me, it's not an ESG compliant business, right? It's not trying to heal people from their addiction it's furthering their addiction Would do you think that it's a it's the opposite of that or do i think you, it's the opposite under the same of that land? i view okay. it,
1: the i think that the, pow, the power of addiction and the challenge that it presents is a significant thing that we don't really have a full understanding of and the ability to be there to support and help someone whether it's just for a week, and they end up using again, is problematic. I think that what I would suggest is that the methadone clinic that is a bridge is insufficient as your solution to tackling the problem, but a piece to the solving the problem. Hmm, And in that way, what you need is a mix of sound investment, sound policy, and sound alignment with you know, the health, health system to make sure that we are all marching to actually tackle that significant problem. I mean, I, we don't need to dive into the opioid epidemic right now. It's, it's serious and real. And, and so I view that methadone clinic not as a problem. I, 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 use, an, I use this thought experiment. Remove it. It's yeah, not exactly. there. What, yeah. what is the state of the world for those individuals addicted to the drugs? What happens? I, d- I think that's a real question because in, in, to my mind,
0: that clinic that we're talking about, I don't know that the world is worse off. I don't know that those people are worse off.
1: They might be better off. I think they're worse off by not having some level of support system. And as I mentioned, it's like the clean needle program in, in certain cities around heroin drug use. Like, okay, what problem no, are you trying that's to tackle? Dealing with the, yeah,
0: that's a different problem that they're trying to tackle. They're saying, hey, we're going to accept this one thing so that we don't have a bunch of HIV infection, right, or, or hepatitis or whatever else. It's not about solving the drug problem at all. Whereas the methadone clinic, that particular methadone clinic, that doesn't have any ancillary services connected to get people off the path. I'm not sure it's doing that. I I think it's, I think actually what they're focused on, it's possible. Again, I have a more pessimistic view of people generally than I think you do. And I think the people in there are thinking, how do I get this product out the door? Otherwise they might have, they would have come up with these other strategies to To use in the in the clinic as well, but it doesn't seem like they're trying to.
1: But that's where this even like the comment I made back on the psychedelic comment, uh, psychedelic point. You you describe that methadone clinic as a certain type of one that's not interested in either the connection with other ancillary services, helping yeah. move policy in a direction yeah. that's beneficial, or building a bridge to the right type of clinical health care. It's an isolated silo, separate. So yeah, the point the point I made about the psychedelics too was around understanding what what is management's intention around this business and this investment? And therefore, what am I investing in? And so the evaluation of that, broadly speaking, I think methadone clinics are an effective and part of a comprehensive answer, not the only answer piece. And so if the management sees themselves isolated as the only answer to generate and build out their only business, That's not a business I would invest in because I don't think the problem and pain point they're tackling is the right one to be tackling and therefore not worthy of the investment. The question is, how do you how do you structure a clause that allows for that level of flexibility around certain spaces? I don't quite know. Um, Which
0: which is a great place to go, because I guess my point is that hard and fast rules don't work. That's why it's got to be the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Uh, well, and I think what you want to build so. is,
1: yeah, and I, what you want to build with your partners, who LPs are your partners, and this is a sound understanding for who you are and what you want to invest in, which then brings us full circle back to where you started, which is people can allocate a smaller portion of money than an LP would put into a investment fund to you. And so how do you transparently help people understand how you go about making a complex kind of ethical and personal decision, but also one that you feel is is sound and, and won't compromise your returns
0: well that was a lot of fun and i hope interesting that's kind of the reason why jack and i started to turn these into podcasts we thought they might be fun for other people as well i hope you've uh enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having the conversation and we'll see you again uh, next time